Welcome to Funny Women Behind the Scenes, a sequent covered podcast hosted by international showgirl and comedian Ivy Page. We'll be exploring what it's really like to work in the entertainment industry, from live comedy and cabaret to television and film. Brought to you by Funny Women, the leading community for female comedy. So let's get on with the show and welcome your host, Ivy Page. Hello and welcome to the real life work of art or piece of work, award deserving, flame haired titan of teas. Yes, it's me, Ivy Page. It's time to take a seat on my chaise lounge in my personal burlesque boudoir as we break the fourth wall, draw back the velvet curtains and reveal what really happens behind the scenes. Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes and today's episode I am absolutely delighted to be talking to Elf Lyons, the award-winning comedian, writer and theatre practitioner. So hello Elf. Hello, how are you? I'm really good thank you, how are you? I'm trying not to eat so many minced pies that I become one most traditional sort of reply in December but that's sort of what especially in lockdown as well you feel less even less encouraged to try and be healthy I've just gone full-on gin sherry mince pies chocolate and sort of binge buying on Etsy that's basically my life right now (laughs) Uh, there's nothing wrong with binge buying or eating mince pies. Um, so I'm going to start you with a question. I always ask this of my wonderful guests. Do you keep your chocolate in the cupboard or in the fridge? I just carry my chocolate with me everywhere. I, we, my, because I'm living with my mum and dad at the moment. My dad will be that person that you say, dad, can you remember you need to do the bins? And he'll go, yeah, sure. And just never do them. But if you say, is there any chocolate in the house? He'll immediately go, there isn't, but I will get some and just will stand up. He'll be in the car before you know it and he'll be out. There's chocolate everywhere. Like, I think there's some over here. There's some over there. There's just, I'm surrounded by it constantly. I always find when I'm on tour, um, I eat loads of chocolate. It's what you need. It's comfort food. I still remember once being on the tube and this woman started crying and she was like having a full on tears everywhere out of her nose, ears, like everywhere. She was just a melting pot of of sadness and melancholia. And I leant over and I said, would you like a Ferrero Rocher? And she was like, yes, please. And I handed her one. And then after she took it and she ate it, she went, do you always carry Ferrero Rocher with you? And I went, yes. And she went, that's really weird. (laughs) And it was so interesting how the status in that dialogue changed so quickly. She'd been so upset, eaten my chocolate, and then felt now was the time she could judge me. Do you always carry Ferrero Rocher with you? Pretty much. My favourite, favourite chocolate. Where were those chocolates when we were backstage at A Night in Soho? Where were my Ferrero Rocher? We didn't need them at that time because we were too busy, too busy just living in the moment, just sort of forgetting that there was a pandemic on, just being able to perform again and remember what we were born to do. So, Elf, you are an award-winning comedian. 
Um, you, I was looking, you won the Malcolm Hardy Award for Comic Originality. I got nominated. Okay. Um, I got nominated. I, I mean, I'd love to say, I, my dad does this all the time. He'll tell people like, she won this and she won this. And I go, it was a nomination. Dad. You go, It's like she got 15 A's at GCSE. And I'm like, I got eight, dad. She got 25 A-levels. I'm like, why do you over, why do you need to exaggerate? It, we don't need to. It's still pretty good. But yes, I got nominated, which was amazing. Uh, and what was that for? What show was that for? So it was for Swan back in 2017, which feels like an age ago now. But it was my one-woman production of Swan Lake in an hour in French-ish. I, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Weren't you meant to be doing that show this year? Yeah, we were going to be recording it for next up this December. But then obviously lockdown happened and economically it, is so much of a risk to then try and do a show straight off the back of lockdown. Too much relies on it. And you've already got a socially distanced audience, so it's the bare minimum for laughter. And then you imagine that one third of that potential audience decide not to because of lockdown and no money. It's just, it's it's not worth it. You end up with a really sparse audience, sparse energy and a very sparse bank account. So it was, it was really upsetting that we had to make the call on it because I was so looking forward to doing it again. You're listening to Funny Women Behind the Scenes. All the backstage gossip and more. You, you were a Funny Woman finalist, weren't you? Back in 2013? 2013, I think it was, yeah. Oh Long my God, time. I've just realised something. What? I entered the Funny Women Awards in 2013. I wonder what heat did you do? Do you remember? Oh, I, was, I want to say it was in a, it was in a little pub, <laughs> and I was dressed up as Ivy Page uh-huh. um, in my cabaret finery, um, and I brought all all of my friends, which I think was about three. <laughs> Dragged them along. So I said, "Please come and do this." So let's talk, talk about uh, your journey on the competition. So you were a finalist. Yes, it was because I remember that I think one of my first ever comedy gigs was doing one of the funny women competition, funny women heats years and years before. I think it was the year that Jessica Foster Q was in the final. I think it was that year because I must have been just about 18, 17. And it was I remember it was a gig in the round at the Orange Tree in Richmond. It's like one of my first ever comedy gigs. And that was my first introduction to funny women because you'd sort of heard about it online. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that until I feel like I could be sort of ready to potentially have a chance at it. Um, And then I made the call and I did a Brighton Heat. And I just remember going in guns blazing because I just had a breakup. And I feel like breakups are perfect. Like the sort of, the perfect first dose like drug dose for comedy writing a high level drama isn't it yeah they're like they're I wouldn't say you should use them every time but I think in those like first few sort of um years of development as a comic especially as like a young woman when you're really trying to find who you are and find your voice and find that rage Mm -hmm. I think finding things to be angry about a breakup is sort of the perfect thing at that time to really go guns blazing it and I had a really big like the first proper breakup as well I was about 21 
And and so I just put all my energy into this five minute routine, which when I watch back is so it's such a sweet routine. Like it's still funny for that for that girl at that time. It's not what I would be doing at all now. It's the furthest thing away from my comedy voice. I was going to ask you that. Do you ever go back through your material and use like recycle jokes or do you kind of year on year you develop new material, you write new material and kind of shelve old jokes it's it's so interesting how I remember Al Murray saying this years ago in Edinburgh he he, it was the first proper piece of comedy advice I remember being given he said write everything down and he said because I still go back through my journals when I was a lot younger when I first started doing the pub landlord and it's only then I see something that I'm capable of doing now because he says you might have the fantastic idea then but you will not have all the all the tools in your toolbox to do it justice. So I always think, you know, it's always worth sometimes going back and revisiting old shows and revisiting material. God, I've got this whole section I think I wrote in like 2011 about the buses on the Isle of Wight. And I thought it was hysterical. And only now I think, goodness, like how little my little young 20-year-old world was that I thought buses on the Isle of Wight was a really hardcore piece of material. Um, it's like the joy of why I wanted to redo Swan was people saying, well, why would you want to show Swan again as opposed to one of your recent shows? And I say, well, Swan was done in 2017 and I had such rage and fire doing it. And the beautiful thing about that show, because it was a clown show, is with clowning, it doesn't really age it's timeless because the material in so many ways isn't and this is my viewpoint of clowning it's not autobiographical to where you are at that time it can transform and mutate depending so I could go back and perform to Swan at any point in my life and I think it would still be funny because it doesn't matter what age I perform it at it wasn't relevant that I was 26 at the time and I know I could come back to Swan and bring so much more to it actually as I get older and it's the type of show I think at 90 years old a 90 year old woman performing a one-woman production of Swan Lake dressed as a macaw um, I think sounds absolutely brilliant so it's quite exciting to make shows like that where I think this isn't just a timepiece. this isn't just for this one year at Edinburgh while I've got this shtick do you know what I mean yeah I do because I think year on year we always have the notion of write the new show new show new show new show and actually by kind of cataloging your jokes kind of seeing as your work as this has a life beyond this one year period I think gives you sustainability as an artist Mm -hmm. but I wanted to just kind of go back to the clowning and the kind of physicality of clowning do you use that when you're writing your jokes when you're crafting your jokes do the two cross over all the time but it depends how we define jokes because I think and this is I find this really interesting relation to women in particular when we talk about you know that age-old argument of men are funnier than women and often when people state that they base it on the auditory they base it on what on jokes the traditional setup punchline the one-liners the puns and they look at old films and they look at old sketch groups and they see those men with all those big lines And because of the airtime, you make the assumption, well, men are funnier because they say more. Mm. But you actually look at films, silent cinema, 
film in general, Marilyn Monroe, Lucille Ball, the way that women dominate, and I, this is my belief in comedy, is through the body. And we often forget that through the body you can create jokes. Slapstick, falling, sipping on the banana. A high status character slips on something, falls over. Set up, punchline. The, you know, the carpet is literally pulled from underneath their feet. That's what a joke is. It's the surprise of the fall. And I think women have actually always excelled in that greater than men because we had to, because we weren't given the lines. So how does a woman exist on screen when she doesn't have the words to dominate? We use our bodies, so we use our sexuality or the way Lucille Ball would play with being the really glamorous woman and do these phenomenal strip teasers, but then use them to undercut them by them all going wrong. She used her the image she had and the way men looked at her as her strength for comedy performance. So when I write, so in answer to a question, when I write jokes, I think about the visual first. I think about how, what do people see when I come on stage and how can I use that to play that? So... Swan being example, I'm a tall woman who's quite sexually confident. Um, coming on stage dressed as a macaw in a parrot costume that's not big enough to cover my bottom, it's not a sexy outfit. It's so stupid. I look immediately silly. But wearing it with the commitment as if I was wearing a sequin diamante dress, there's this lovely set-up punchline, that's a joke already. It's sort of the juxtaposition. Um, so when I'm writing, like writing routines, I often think about the aesthetic first and I think about the music. And I, one of the ways I like to make work, which I would advise to anyone, especially women, is um, or anyone listening to this podcast, is get to understand how your body moves. Yeah, I, I work similarly. Get a camera and it will feel really uncomfortable and play different music. So play like the first time a pop track and video yourself dancing to it and and then put on like a Peter on the Wolf and move to that and just and then move in silence and see the different ways that your body can be guided and it will feel really uncomfortable. But you'll watch it back and go, ah, that's interesting. I thought I moved like this, but it turns out I put more weight in my right hip. I do this because we all know the different ways we all dance and move and we love mimicking and parodying our friends going, oh my God, Sarah, you always do this with your arms. These are really great strengths in comedy. And once you realise you can utilise those, I think joke writing becomes significantly more pleasurable because you go, oh, it doesn't have to be a written word. It doesn't have to be da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It can be da-da-da-da-da-da. And then suddenly you do something with your body and the, that's it. And it's more beautiful and more accessible because it's suddenly relatable to people who don't just speak your language. This is Funny Women Behind the Scenes. If you want to know more about us, visit www.funnywomen.com. Is clowning, is it art? I mean, I get asked this question all the time about cabaret burlesque and my question is, of course it is, but not everybody knows about it. So what's your thoughts on that? It's definitely art because art is when it comes from that desire of interpretation and how it immediately makes one feel. And does it take you somewhere else? Does it give you that feeling of uh, weightlessness? That's how I consider art. Does it for a minute change the way your body 
ways in this world does some work makes you suddenly feel 10 10 tons and you go and you feel it and some work makes you float and levitate when your density when your space in the world feels like an equilibrium is suddenly out of whack that's what art is for me and I would say clowning definitely is up because it also it art is the is something pleasurable that has been refined you know like painting art fine art is you know it's fine it's been perfected there's skill um clowning cabaret burlesque lots of people can do them badly <laughs> lots of people can do them in a really lovely way but it is an art when cuz I think anyone can be clown-like and everyone has a clown, but it takes great artistry and skill to be able to go on stage every night and be it time and time again. And I, and so, I mean, the amount of people I teach who are so funny, like there's always a moment when every student will make you cry with laughter, but then there's very few who are actually able to harness that and go, I can now work how to do that every single day. Um, let's talk a bit more about some of your projects. So I know, obviously, lockdown, we haven't been doing as much live work, but you have been a busy bee, haven't you? Yes, I have. I have. It's, you, you know what? I'm really proud of how much I managed to do this lockdown. But it's also, it, it's about putting it in perspective because I was explaining to a friend recently who also works in the arts because she said you've done so much and I said I'll show you the list I'll show you all the stuff that I've done that people see and I'll show you a list of everything that I've pitched for everything I've written for free for and everything I've been turned down for every gig that nobody has replied to me for you know I was trying to sort of show the balance of going so when I say I'm proud of myself I don't want it to sound like I'm going na 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 because I think if you don't really have an understanding of how long and how much graft it takes and how many knocks you constantly get and like the list of like the things I've achieved amongst the amount of things that I've received. Oh, I'm really sorry. We really loved it, but you know, they're, they're sort of equal in in length. Now Um, that's a, you know, the amount of graft that goes into looking successful Oh my goodness. It's all so much smoke. Like the amount of times I've done a f- Instagram post, like being really smiling and cheery about something like two minutes just after I've been, you know, it sounds more negative than I mean it to be. But what I'm trying to make the point of is I'm not quite sure what the point is, but I think sometimes it can look very like happy go lightly. It can look like the most happy, whimsical, manic pixie dream girl experience of all time. Just sitting there going, I'll write a show based in space and there'll be dinosaurs and I'll wear a wig. La, la, la. You know, people can sometimes think that's what your world is. And what are your top tips for resilience or from your own personal experience? Um, get on with it, first of all. Um, the only person that can tell you you failed is you. Not all failures are bad failures. I've had some flops of shows or one-off performances which weren't good and I learned a huge amount from them. 
So just and really take time to evaluate and analyze each thing that you do. And always check in with what you're doing it for. Mm. Who are you? Are you doing this so you can impress so-and-so? Are you doing this so you can one day be on Taskmaster? Ask yourself what your values are. What what's the what are the mini goals? Um I think that's it. And also just picking doing exciting things on your terms as well and if in doubt do it yourself yeah I'm very much a believer in that in fact you know I'm I mentor artists too like yourself because I know you do it as well Mm -hmm. one of the things where they're like how how do you how do you get those accolades how do you get those award nominations and I'm like you put on your own shows and if you're not the star of somebody else's show then you put on your own show and you put yourself as the headliner absolutely you fight you save up the money you get the space you book a rehearsal room you make sure it's ready and you perform it like if I was still if I'd just gone waited for people to give me 10 minutes 15 minutes 20 minutes so I could then invite an agent down I would still be on the open mic circuit yeah it got to about 2014 and I thought I really love comedy I'm doing an MA I'm running my own comedy nights but people aren't really going to pop along to them that often or if they do they love the MC but they don't hire they don't sign the MC as an age as an act I've sort of learned the amount of times people go I'd love to see you do a proper set and I'm like I am doing a proper set MCing is an absolute yeah but then I would save up and I did a lot of gigs at the etc theater 40 minutes Camden fringe I did all the smaller fringes I did lots of half an hours in Edinburgh like you know shared I took my time with it because then through that you then get nicer gigs that go hey do you want to come and do 10 minutes but I remember being booked for a particular niche gig that I'd always really wanted to be booked for and there was an agent in and it was completely by chance and that was sort of how my sort of professional career kicked off but effectively do it on your own terms. I think there's two things there really isn't there one take your time and don't be afraid to work hard I always say this there's no there really isn't an overnight success a career is like in any profession you have to work hard (laughs) uh, and put in the hard work and talent is amazing and it's brilliant if you're talented but you need a bit more than that to get on and why shouldn't you work hard that's what I don't get why shouldn't you work really hard? Why shouldn't you be tired and stressed at points and feel like everything hangs in the balance? You should feel like that all the time, but why shouldn't it feel like the most important thing in the world to you? Because your career is like an, is a, lo- a love affair that you ideally want to have for the rest of your life. You don't want to be in like this loveless marriage with your job. It, it, I remember doing a, I taught a class recently, an online, someone booked me for one of my courses and um, we were going through my exercises and they went, he went, yeah, well, this is all well and good, but how can I actually use this on stage in a material? And I looked at him and I went, I'm not here to write your jokes for you. That's not what this hour is. We go through workshops and steps and we, I'll give you guidance and we'll come up with silly exercises and I'll give you advice and I'll look at your material, but I am not going to spoon feed you. This isn't one of those tutorials that some kids do in order to get someone else to write their personal statement. You 
do this you get excited and inspired and then you go off and you make that show and you write that material and be prepared to fail because actually nothing is a failure one more thing um do you think it's really important that acts get agents it it really very much varies i also can't fully I had an age. I I didn't have an agent for a very long time, and when I had an agent, and when I and my agent now, Helena, is just an absolute dream. It's lovely to have someone else, a teammate, who understands the nuances of business in ways that I don't. It's nice having someone else who roots for you, and it's nice also having someone else who can say the harsh things that sometimes, because the thing is, what we're doing is we're also our brand is who we are, our persona is who we are. And as much as we want to try and keep them separate in emails and in work basic stuff, they do become blurred. So it's lovely having a teammate, a colleague, someone who vouches what you do and you vouch what they do to be able to come in and, and argue your corner when you might not actually be able to. Um, but I, I don't think it's, I think, I don't think it's for everyone. And I, if you, it depends what area of your work is. I, I think nowadays we've innovated so much, especially in lockdown via Zoom, podcasts. This is our fifth episode of this. Has it been really amazing? Oh, it's been utterly amazing. I've loved it. It's the best thing to have come out of lockdown for me. It's been an absolute joy. You've been so busy as well. I can't get over how much you do. Well, it's the work ethic stuff. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons that we get on. It's that we're both, I'm very much a believer in honing your craft and working hard mm-hmm. and actually isn't always easy and different different work ethics at different times. And I think that's important. And like, you know, you're a multifaceted artist. You write, you direct, you mentor, mm-hmm. um, for your clowning. And I think as a self employed performer it's really good to have different skill sets that are all part of your art all they all feed in in different ways don't they to to what you create and yeah that sort of adds to it when people need to get inspiration don't just watch comedy I very rarely recommend people to watch comedy when they're writing comedy shows oh really you should be looking at you should be looking at art, looking at art imagery, looking at stuff that moves you, looking at costume designs, looking at theatre, looking at watching theatre shows, looking at the lighting design, looking at sound design, watch ballet, watch dance, look at how they use their bodies, look at how they check in with the audience, look at the role of the... All these other... Watch science shows, look at science experiments, think, oh, that's an interesting weird experiment they've done with a Coke can and some Mentos. Could I use that for a special effect? Yes, I can. Could that be a Mount Vesuvius? Yes, it could. Brilliant. Will I do it by candlelight? Sure, because I've watched Woman in Black. You know, that's... For me, that's how I make shows because if you just watch comedy, you go, well, they've done this, they've done that. I've done, well, where do I fit? And, and we get very narrow-minded. You I completely agree. When, when I make shows, I like to create like a logbook or like a, a diary and it's, it's, it's with pictures, music, uh, you know, art, you know, web links. It's kind of more than a mood board because it's an ever-evolving document. To some degree, I often think, oh, this process is actually part of the art itself mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a document, it's existing as a document separately. Um, 
And it goes back to what we were saying right at the start, which is cataloging your stuff. Because not only does your live work exist in that moment with the audience, but actually when you catalog it and record it and not just record it from a video perspective, it exists forever for you then as an artist to return to. Yeah, totally agree. Elf, our time is nearly up. But before oh. before we... I know, I, we could keep talking for ages, but <laughs> we have to talk one thing before you go. How to name your pet. Please, can you just... Please, can you tell the audience what this means? Um, well, this is obviously... You've clearly gotten this question from my article from Guinea Pig magazine, um, because that's probably how many of your listeners will know me from, which is the most popular magazine in the world on guinea pig welfare but um so greek gods they're a fantastic one zeus is a pretty good name your favorite mountain that's always a good one kilimanjaro for a tortoise we've got dictionaries we've got hundreds of different languages we've got lots of interesting types of glue that you could name an animal there's just all types of drills or cutlery there is like fork spatula these amazing sounds that you could use to name an animal be creative if Gwyneth Paltrow can do it with her own children why can't you name your baby spork okay when I have a baby I'm coming to you for a name and inspiration (laughs) yeah we can drink and we will name your child and on that note, um, let's say a huge thank you to the incredible, um, award-winning, multi-talented, faceted artist, Elf Lions. Elf, tell everybody where they can find you. Um, you can find me on www.theelflions.com. And next year, my horror show, Gorgon, a horror story, is being released as a audio download. So because we couldn't tour it, I've done it as a horrifying Foley soundscape for you to download and listen to and be very scared by. So you'll be able to get that via my website. We can't wait. Thank you so much, Elf. Bye. Bye. This is Funny Women Behind the Scenes. I'm going to entice her from out of the gin cupboard. Please welcome the incredible, the founder of Funny Women, Lynn Parker. I'm I'm pleased to hear that I'm actually in the gin cupboard this week. Yeah, you're in it. You're you're drinking all the gin. We're going to have to (laughs) replenish the stocks. So, gin. Gin? (laughs) Who's been drinking the gin? I've been drinking the gin. Lynn, let's start by picking up on the topic of agents. Because I think a lot of the people listening will think that you have to have an agent to be successful or to get ahead. What are your thoughts? Well, this is a very interesting area and one that I have been... um, uh, criticised for and also applauded for because I think it's really important not to get signed until you're ready. And I've seen people grab the first opportunity to be signed by a management company and I have known that it is not right for them because as Elf so eloquently put it, your relationship with your management company or agent 
is a partnership. They really have to want to be, they need start again. They really need to believe in you and they need to be part of your almost part of your act in the sense that they're working with you to develop it. And sometimes you're just not ready for that. You're not ready for someone to say, dress like this, do it like that, do these kind of jokes. And I think I think Elf absolutely nailed it in terms of that whole thing of not rushing into it is probably the most important thing I would say to anyone. It's always difficult because after each Funny Women Awards final, we do get a lot of interest from agents who want to sign the acts. Not all of them. They will pick and choose, can usually work out who they're going to go for. Um, And it's because they're marketable. You know, agents are looking for someone they can make money out of. You know, that's the basic principle. Um, It's a shame that's it because I'd like to think that they're also looking for people that they're happy to develop. And, and some agents are brilliant. They will, they will offer acts an opportunity to go into development with them. So they don't like kind of sign them up on a real, you know, full on thing. They'll say, let's just give it six months. Let's look at your work. Let's help you out. Let's get you some gigs, maybe get you the Pleasance Reserve if we ever have an Edinburgh again, they will take you through steps in a very deliberate and structured way to build up your career and build up your confidence. I'm always wary when agents promise the earth to very new acts. So, I, you know, it's a difficult relationship because we are, we are most definitely, as funny women, not agents. We're not a management company. We try and retrain. We try and retain our neutrality so that we can be supportive and helpful. And we have brilliant relationships with some management companies who I would thoroughly recommend. I know you and I have spoken about this. Yeah, we spoke about this a lot. Yeah. A lot. And there are some amazing, probably not super well known agents who I think are perfect for a newer act or a quirky act. I mean, someone like you who does burlesque, it's a very, you know, it's got to be someone who really gets that, understands the cabaret scene. Um, Elf is a completely different animal. You know, she's doing unusual art shows. She isn't necessarily going to be on live at the Apollo. <laughs> so, so you know, you're you're looking for someone who's going to really be in that partnership with you and if somebody was thinking oh I, I I want an agent to come and see my work what should they be inviting them to because one of the things that I think that both Elf and I were saying is be ready like and that's not age dependent either that's be ready so should they be inviting them to open mic nights? Should it be when you have your hour show? Is that the time to invite somebody to come and see you? What would your advice be? I don't think there's any hard and fast rules, actually. Some people are ready to be seen because they've got five great minutes. They're, they might just be a natural stand-up and getting seen by the right agent might be the catalyst to your career. So I wouldn't rule anything out. But if you are more experience artist and you've been working for a few years you'll probably have a good idea in your head of what you want from an agent so 
in that context, invite them to see something that you're very proud of, that you feel is really from your soul, and that they are going to want to work with you because they believe in what you're doing. So there's two very different ways of looking at it. So there's new acts needing a kind of support and help mechanism. And then there's more established acts who've already got, who've already got their persona. They've already got their show. Um, and you might need a different agent at a different time in your career. I mean, I've known some quite well-known acts who have changed agents probably three or four times in 10 years because they move on and they need something different. So, you know, be prepared and don't be frightened to ask people to come and see you either, you know, pick up, does anyone pick up the phone anymore? <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> email them, you know, WhatsApp them, get hold of them on Twitter, pester them, you know, get them to come and see you. You do have to be quite um, persistent, actually, I think. But if there's a buzz about it, the other way of going about it is get some publicity, get people interested in you, create your own, you know, buzz around Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever you use, TikTok, switch all these new things um never have we had more of an opportunity to showcase our work uh you know get people to look at it and particularly now in lockdown if you're making great stuff video stuff and you can put it on instagram tiktok um what a great way to get yourself in front of people and a good agent good management company they're looking out for you they're looking out for great people if they're not then they're not a good they're not doing their job because that's how you're going to that that's how they're going to get business and that's how you're going to get signed and i'm going to suggest people enter the funny women awards because i uh, the reason i'll say this now that's not just because i'm biased is because i was doing a stand-up comedy gig um when we were allowed a couple of weeks ago and backstage we were all talking about it and in terms of stand-up straight stand-up is i'm actually relatively new even though i've got an established cabaret career so they were saying to me, um, you should enter the Funny Women Awards. That's a really good way and opportunity to get recognised as a stand-up comic. And they independently didn't know I'm hosting this podcast, didn't know anything about our connection. So on the circuit, it's very much a do enter the awards. People take notice. You know, without sounding over corny, it is my life's work. I'm extremely proud of it. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a comedian. I'm just the person that curates it and puts it together. I work with a brilliant director, Becky Singh. I think we have a great formula and um, it's brilliant. And it's great that people are saying that about us. I'm now going to put her back in the gin cupboard uh, until the next episode. Thank you so much, Lynn. Thanks, Ivy. You've been listening to Funny Women Behind the Scenes with Ivy Page. If you like us, please subscribe, review and share. 